Halito, and welcome to Native Chalk Talk, a podcast by Natives for all. Here, we're keeping our Native ancestors' stories and history alive, while also sharing with you our Native cultures, traditions, and more. I'm Rachel Youngman, a Choctaw originally from Anadarko, Oklahoma. I hope you'll enjoy this journey with me as we learn from our Native American guests. And stay tuned for the end of each episode, where we'll talk about some great ways to support Native causes and or Native-owned businesses. Let's get started. But first, a word from our sponsor. Potential is everywhere in the Choctaw people. It's in our schools and students. It's in our small businesses and entrepreneurs. Potential is in our lifestyle and health. It's in our culture and heritage. Passion and commitment is in our blood. Ingenuity and economy are a tradition. And the Chutla Foundation was founded for this potential. To cultivate minds and hearts, to stimulate ideas and passions, to extend lives and improve health through education, and to preserve and promote the power of our past. The Chatha Foundation, meeting the potential of the Choctaw people. Welcome to part two of Native Chalk Talk's episode, Jim Gray, former chief of the Osage Nation on his family and the reign of terror. So again, the government passed a law where non-Native guardians would so-called protect, in quotes, the Osage with all their newfound wealth and manage their money for them because they were assumed to be incapable of managing it themselves. And of course, this led to the guardians receiving a fee for their services and controlling the money. And in some cases, they would allot such a small allowance that the Osage would end up in debt, borrowing from their guardians, and later they were forced to turn in their assets to pay for those debts. A similar thing happened with my own family members, although no one was murdered, just abused. So where things went wrong was head rights could be passed on through inheritance, and therefore white folks were marrying Osage allottees just for the money and inheritance from those royalties. And this is where our story begins a story that's almost unbelievable. Jim, I'd like to quote your words once again from what you said from the article in Indian Country Today. Maybe it's better than an outsider tell the Osages their history back to them because people like me can't be objective or maybe the events are too hard to believe if told by the Osages themselves. Even after I consider this notion, I disagree because I know Osage people from across the spectrum have their version of these events not told in the archives of the BIA or the FBI, but rather passed down from one family member to another. And so the Osage version of this story never really goes away. But the story we often hear is the one other people have told about us, but rarely is it the one we tell ourselves. So even though Killers of the Flower Moon is a book and soon a movie too, some of those people are your family members. I can only imagine how much these stories are just close to home for you specifically. So let's set the scene. We have the towns of Fairfax and Pawhuska and the community of Gray Horse. And will you share a bit about these three places? Well, the, uh, the, the town of Fairfax um, is the, the city and Gray Horse is the community like you described just a few miles outside of town. Mm -hmm. The Gray Horse community 
was settled when we moved here from Kansas. The tribe's traditional districts all fell into different communities. One group fell into the area called Gray Horse. One mm -hmm. group fell into the area called Pahuska, which later became the capital. And another group fell in the area called Hominy. Now, Hominy became a city. Pahuska became a city. Fairfax became the city. But Gray Horse stayed as its own standalone community within that area. Having the tribe consist, you know, holding on to their cultural, traditional ways, even when they came down here, became a very important element to this story as it continues on even to today. Those mm -hmm. three districts are still very much a part of the fabric of the tribe today. Very much so. And uh, so you mentioned Hominy and Fairfax. How does that fit into? Fairfax is the community just outside of Greyhorse. It's a different, it's a different district of the Osage people. It's made up of clans and bands that all settled in that area and what later became the city of Hominy. So that particular district is called Zonzoli. And Fairfax is called Pazuli, uh, Greyhorse, I mean. And then Pahuska is Wakakali. And so those three districts comprise what is the traditional organizational structure of the Osage people back to our days in Missouri. That's great information. I wonder if some of the non-natives that live in the area even know that that history. Very fascinating. And I was also reading that um, the town of Greyhorse was named after Kowahosa, who was a medicine man and is still used as an area for the tribal ceremonies. So listeners, Jim and I are about to go into multiple spoilers. So fair warning, this was all Jim's idea to give y'all spoilers though. So if you're going to be mad at anyone, <laughs> mad at Jim, sorry, Jim. No, it's all me. I feel like we can't talk about these important people that went through so much on their journeys in life without giving y'all spoilers. So here we go. Lo and behold, Osage people started disappearing one after the other, starting in 1921 with an Osage man named Charles Whitehorn. Charles's body was found two weeks after his disappearance on a hill near Pahuska. He was shot between the eyes twice. It was later assumed that Charles's wife, Hattie, married a man after Charles's death and that they had earlier been plotting to kill Charles. Neither of them was convicted and Hattie was quoted in the paper saying, if I tell you what happened, you will send me to the electric chair. I mean, I would think that that would be kind of telling, right? But Sounds like an admission. Sometimes, doesn't it? I'm no attorney, but yeah. yeah. Uh, so from here, more murders are committed, and we'll go into that in just a bit. But in the book, the story revolves around Molly Burkhart, whose three sisters all died mysterious deaths. And the family and other survivors had multiple attacks, poisoning, shooting, and a bombing, all in an effort so others could get their hands on those head rights. And there was even more drama around this story. Some non-native citizens tried to help the Osage and they were murdered. For instance, thrown from a train, murdered. So Jim, you're related to one of those people in this real life story. Let's not forget these are human beings. These are not people in a fictional book. So please tell us about your great-great-grandpa. Yes, um, my great-grandfather's name is Henry Brown. And he was a... Um, a young man who lived in the Gray Horse area back in the earlier times of the times we're talking about, but like maybe 15 years mm -hmm. earlier, he was in an arranged marriage, which they did back then with Molly. And wow. uh, the relationship didn't work out for whatever reason. And they split up and uh, Molly later married Ernest Burkhart. 
that's and, that's a big thing our listeners need to yeah. to keep in their mind. So Henry, your and it's your great grandpa. He mm-hmm. married Molly, who Molly Burkhart is the the kind of the gal that they focus on primarily, and then all the stories build around her. Okay, and and also they were cousins, right? Well, all Osages are cousins, some extent or another. <laughs> my cousin, brother, uncle, yeah. right? I get I you. Mean, <laughs> I don't, I don't know how close they were, but it, it must not have been that close. Okay, um, but, gotcha. Uh, but we have, we're living in two worlds right now. Mm-hmm. You know, we right. have the old traditional world running right smack into a modern world that is changing almost every day. The mm-hmm. industrial revolution, the need to power those machines, required a massive amount of oil. And the oil was found on our reservation. Mm. So the 19th century met the 21st century in Pahuska, mm-hmm. Fairfax, and Hominy during that time. Mm-hmm. And it was a clash of cultures. It was a merging of cultures. But it was also an opportunity for people who had ill intent at the time to separate Osages from their wealth. My great-grandfather was not immune from that experience. And the federal policies of the day sent him as a young boy to Carlisle in Pennsylvania, which is a boarding school for young Indian kids all around the United States were sent there. They were stripped of their traditional clothes. Their hair was shaved. They were lived in barracks and they were forced to uh, march. And there's a picture that I have in my home of him around 10 years old and his hair is cut really short. He's wearing a suit, which was part of the PR campaign of the yeah. Of the boarding school era, they wanted to celebrate. They would show these side-by-side pictures of them arriving, looking like they did when they left their reservation. And then the next show side is a picture of them all cleaned up. What they don't show you during that period of time was that many Indian children committed suicide due to oh, loneliness. Good God. Many of them were beaten to the point where some of them died. There's a scandal going on in the boarding schools today in 2022, where they're discovering mass graves of Indian children near where these old schools resided throughout both Canada and in some cases here in the United States. So this is not a a good thing, despite the best efforts to sell it that way. Uh, A lot of these kids returned home damaged in a way that it's hard to really define. But what you'll see during that period of time is that a lot of Native children came back having not experienced what it's like to be raised Osage, to not have that constant mm-hmm. relationship with your parents, to understand the, you know, the things that were important to be an Osage. They were robbed of all that. They were robbed of a childhood. And so Henry Roan was not any different than anybody else at that period of time. And a lot of times people would get help for having grown up into that kind of structure, mm-hmm. behavioral health, but he never got it, you know? And so mm-hmm. a lot of folks during that period of time, having lost their traditional ways, lost a, a very important relationship with their family and lost a very important things with their tribe, their cultural connections to the tribe. Uh, they, they were robbed of the opportunity to speak their language at a time when it was being, we were being told to assimilate, to abandon everything that was Osage and to come into uh, the white man's world. And so having come into this money and realizing that that is a, uh, both a blessing and a curse, if you will, that this money could be used to build a home, build a family, build a business, or to educate yourself in the finest schools in the country. And some did. Some 
also went into uh, addiction. The, mm -hmm. There was people out there peddling, you know, heroin and uh, people peddling uh, alcohol and people peddling all kinds of, of get-rich-quick schemes that uh, they would persuade their guardian to invest in. And the Indians knew nothing about that. You know, mm -hmm. this was a very abusive, one-sided relationship. And despite all of that, the Osages weren't in a position to tell their side of the story, even then. Somebody else told that story. The stories we tell each other are far more interesting and far more entertaining and informative than anything you can imagine and apply to us. Yeah, good point. We, we, we've tried it your way for the last 75 years in Hollywood. <laughs> Let us take a whack at it. Because yeah, I got to step feeling, aside for a minute. You might like what we're doing. You right. might be surprised that how we see ourselves is just as entertaining as what you thought you were looking at when you saw it through your lens. Right. And it might just shine a light on you just a little bit of a mirror on you, just a little bit on how you've always gotten it wrong. Mm -hmm. But don't be mad about it because right. it's not your fault. Because yeah. it's not your story. <laughs> no one's going to tell our story better than we oh, can yeah, you know right. <laughs> just know. support us in the effort you know if, exactly if we invite you please support us when we talk about and we, we we go we've done this in this interview we've talked about the the challenge indigenous people have in america mm -hmm. of retaining that cultural side that makes us who we are as indigenous people while existing in this larger world where none of those things of, are of any value, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's that whole mindset of living in both worlds. You owe it to yourself to know who you are so that you can be strong in this other world. Because in this mm -hmm. other world, if you abandon everything you are and just try to be another white person, you'll never be accepted because they won't see you that way. So the only option you really have is to, to for thine own self, remain true to who you are. Hmm. And, and build your world around that in hopes that maybe one day this larger society will take notice and value what you have. And you've, you owe it to the people who sacrifice so much to give you what you have now. Ooh. And you have a responsibility to make sure that when you hand it off to the next generation, it's in good condition, you know? Yes. And, um, and so we all play a role here. But we can't give in to the kind of things that they originally wanted us to be, which um, was to be abandoning our tribe, and our culture and our heritage and everything that meant anything at all to our ancestors. So you mentioned earlier that, you know, you gave a really good overview from your perspective as a family member, not having a ton of information on your great granddaddy about his life and just his personal life, you know, what was he like and all that, but you still give it, gave a really great overview. And something that touched me was, was it Pratt? That was the, the starter of Carlisle school in Pennsylvania was, um, Henry yes. Pratt or William Pratt or mm -hmm. something. But, you know, you talk about the military gear that they would wear. He was a military guy. He was like, Oh, I can, in some bizarre way, I think he thought that this was going to solve the United States problems. Like we're going to take these, 
Indians and we're going to mm-hmm. make them military because military works, you know, it's structured. We're going to shave their heads so that they can yep. fit in better with society. And he may have known or not known, but that was destroying these cultures. And would you explain to us as well, though, what it means, you know, the long hair on our people in a lot of tribes, many tribes is very important. So when they shaved your great granddad's head, Henry Roan, when he went to Carlisle Indian school, what, what does that mean to someone like your great grandpa? A lot of times in our tribe, we men wore their hair long. In some cases they wore it short deliberately. It defined them what role they played in the community. Sometimes it was the, the warrior, sometimes it was the medicine man or whatever. And, in, in this case, like to say that there was this transition going on oh. where we were incorporating other elements of Western society into our cultural daily life. I know that when they, when an Osage passes away, like say a spouse or a child of that individual mm-hmm. would cut their hair as a sign of mourning, mm. you know? So, so it's, it's a big deal to cut. It's not a small thing. And, right. uh, and, and, the case of Henry Roan, when he, I saw that picture of him in Carlisle and his hair was short, I wondered whether or not he had been exposed to enough of the Osage culture, even at that at the age of nine or 10 when he was there. How did he feel getting his hair cut like that? Not having any say so about it or control over it or knowing what the significance of having your hair cut was to him as an Osage. Right. But to him as a award of the government subject to the whims of a fanatical ex-military guy who was going to fix the Indians. It meant something totally different. They had to learn to adapt, right? They had mm-hmm. to learn to adapt. They may have had to suppress any hurt feelings that may have caused them. They may have had to try to rationalize it in a way that maybe satisfied them for a while, but eventually that issue would come back because when you see the pictures of Henry Rohn as a man, after he's returned from Carlisle, he's got braids down to his waist. So apparently their effort to kill the Indian to save the man didn't quite work out as planned. Didn't quite work. And for our listeners, Pratt is the one that coined that term, kill the Indian, save the man, which he again, probably thought he was doing a good thing. We don't care. We don't like what he did. Well, it turned out to be a colossal failure. It was identified in the 1929 Miriam report, which showed that robbing these children of their relationship with their parents and their two-year community destroyed an entire generation of Native mm. parents. And it led to some changes that occurred later during the 30s and 40s and 50s. But it set too many bad things in motion, though, that we couldn't fix. And we're still kind of living with it now. Your grandpa was only 40 years old when he was killed. And, and I'm so sorry to you and to your family for, for all that happened, not just with him, but the ramifications of after that, too. But... We talked before about how, you know, Molly and and Henry had been married and we'll never know the answer to this, but I've always wondered what she thought of all this. You know, it sounds like she was very upset about his being killed or or his death. Had you heard that too, that here's, you know, one person's take on, Mm -hmm. um, if you're William Hale and your goal is to wipe out this entire family until you got all the head rights descending to Molly. And then at the appointed time, you tell your nephew, Ernest Burkhardt, who's married to her and two kids with her, that at the appropriate time, you kill that whole, your wife and kids off. Mm-hmm. And then you'll 
you, Ernest Burkhart, will inherit all of those handwrites, hmm. which would be valued well into the millions of dollars. And then all of a sudden you see this traditional Osage marriage in the past, and you wonder, is this something I need to worry about? And to me, the claim that it was an insurance policy because Henry owned the money, there may be some truth to that, but the fact that it was so sketchy, he had to shop it around for so long before he could find an insurance company that would take it. Right. Uh, right. Oh my God. And who this, was that insurance? Do we cheat him and how? Like who was yeah. that insurance company? <laughs> Good God. But at any rate, there was definitely a, um, um, an, an attempt to destroy this man's character at the time of his trial mm. so that he did not gender any sympathy from the public. Right. So right. they went with the old trope of the drunk Indian, you mm. know, and, but what I thought was really at work here. And I, and I, given the fact that he was gone through such lengths to come up with so many different ways in which, whether it was uh, poisoning her family or her sister or getting one of them drunk and shooting her in the head or blowing up her house with her and her husband and her family in there. He was not above going really crazy in trying to eliminate this family. Right. And, and he's like, uh, doesn't this look obvious, dude? But then his yeah. answer is, well, they're Indians. Like, yeah, who cares? Exactly. So Ugh. I think my guess is, is that part of the reason he did it may have had something to do with the he wanted to wipe out any possible person in the tribe that could make a claim for Molly's estate. Mm, just and, wiping them out one by one. And maybe Henry Rohn being in a traditional marriage with Molly years before may have been something that he could not put at risk. So he had him oh. eliminated, you know, Yeah. to eliminate yeah. the possibility of that being a claim. I don't know. I mean, there. There's a lot of different speculation on that question, even now. Mm-hmm. And uh, but the the one that I don't I don't care for is the one that the the FBI investigators just said that he was a drunk Indian and he was, you know, if Hale didn't kill him, somebody else would have. Kind of, it just so know? happens that they're all dropping like flies somehow. Yeah. Right. It's like, yeah. oh my God, you guys are smarter than this, right? And it it really, I mean, I can't even imagine what so many Osage were feeling during that time. It must have been such a scary time, and also a time of so much loss and mourning in that community. So, um, mm. can you tell us more about Henry's funeral? I know it was well attended by the entire tribe, and by the time his murder occurred, it was after Anna's, it was after Lizzie Q's. So the fact that this one happened right in the middle of that and before Rita um, and her house going <clears> up, <throat> people were, obviously there was already talk. There was already buzz in the community about this. The Osages were probably, they were taking precautions. I know a lot of different stories that I could get into later, but the, but what I know is that William Hale was so intent on making sure that everyone saw him as a friend of the Osage, not the mastermind behind these killings, mm. that he <clears throat> engendered himself to the point where he was actually a pallbearer in oh Henry Rome's funeral. So I'm sure that's going to make for some dramatic acting um, in the movie that um, from what I'm describing to you being played out on the screen, that oh, this guy's okay. behavior is going to require 
someone to be larger than life that's going to always command the presence in the room that is always going to demand complete loyalty among those that are in his circle and anybody who doesn't is completely considered the enemy you know yeah yeah and ostracized in every possible way even not only in life but even in death hmm. they wanted to make sure that uh, everyone hates this person or don't value what they what they have right or what they were um, about the weeks and events leading to henry's murder so a couple of weeks before henry was killed i was reading he had discovered that his wife and a man named roy bunch were having an affair and then bill hale was there to help him deal with this new discovery so-called and it makes me wonder was bill hale telling him that there was an affair going on or was there really who knows but mr hale then planted the seeds that um roy bunch could have been the murderer you know and just before his disappearance he had had henry had headed to bootlegger henry grammar's ranch to get some whiskey and then um he was killed by um john ramsey a, a contract killer hired by bill hale and then ramsey got henry drunk before he killed them and and that ties into what you were saying about they just said oh he was just a drunk indian and was does have you heard anything different is any of that incorrect or from the wrong perspective what it tells me is that it fits his story to marginalize him to oh, make yes. him less likable if if it was true it was probably designed to get him in a, a dark place that he was susceptible to wanting to drink or yeah exactly i mean and yeah. the drinking was part of getting him drunk so they can kill him you know i if you want to go down that route i guess you could I but it makes that, more sense now that you put it sorry to interrupt you but you put it yeah. in perspective earlier when you were like they're trying to make him look bad and yeah. that obviously fits into that whole narrative it could be that there was an affair going on i kind of don't believe it i really think that he was a much loved man in his community we know that that's from the osage's mouths not that a well-loved man can't have an affair but knowing bill hale <laughs> he's probably like okay go in there and like put it in his ear that his wife is having an affair and yada yada so with all of that though with henry dying you mentioned that bill hale was his beneficiary and I believe he didn't even reveal to anyone that he had been included on the insurance policy and, and he was able to get all of Henry's financial interests. Correct. I don't know if he got a hold of his financial interests, but I do know that he tried to collect on the insurance policy, but by that time he had already been charged. Mm. And so I don't think he ever collected on it, to be honest with you. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Because or if, maybe there's a, if there's a criminal indictment against you for murdering somebody and you have an interest on it, and you're an insurance company, I, chances are you're not paying that out. Until True. Like <laughs> so he should have, if all yeah. things had worked the way he wanted it to, but I think he just took things a little too far. He got a little cocky. Well, I don't think it caught. was the insurance. He was what he, he wanted to get rid of somebody who might claim those head rights. That's my theory. You know? Okay. Yeah. Because, Interesting. Yeah. I mean, $25,000 in today's dollars is about a quarter million bucks. So it's not a, a small amount of money right but right. you can understand that that's a lot of money for an insurance policy on someone who at that point didn't have any rights right. which is a lot of the reason why they had guardians assigned to them because they were declared incompetent by the federal government assigned these uh guardians to look out for them 
I was reading that Bill Hale was present at Henry's autopsy and it's shocking really. He obviously had no soul, this Bill Hale, but I, I can see why he may have been there is just to kind of help influence the autopsy maybe. And I wish I could say this story is a one-off, but unfortunately, uh, like you said earlier, what was happening back then on a grander scale with the Osage was, was definitely yeah. not a one-off, but Henry Roan was depicted by J. Edgar Hoover as a picturesque full blood Osage Indian, six foot tall and a fine looking specimen. By any <laughs> chance, do you know, did Hoover meet, did Hoover meet your grandpa or did he just see photos or, or what? I, I'm sure it's just based on photos. He may have been applying the investigator's description and then transposing that in his own words. Sure. You know what I mean? Sure. Because it was important for Hoover to make sure everyone knew who was in charge. You know? <laughs> right. And My so, friend Henry. Yeah. Yeah. As far as his witnessing at his autopsy, uh, what does this tell you about how confident William Hill was that there's no way he was going to do time for killing my great-grandfather and all he was doing was making sure the story fit there's a spot in fairfax oklahoma you can go to stand right in front of the tall chief theater Mm -hmm. and look across the street and you could see the building where william hale's business was Mm -hmm. and you go to the end of that block across that street on the second floor is where all the doctor's offices were that that provided you know medicine to Osages. And then four doors down on the other side of his office was a pool hall where he could get people to go do a a deal for him out in the country. Wow. Do a job. Across the street where I was standing at the Halchi Theater is a lot, just a, a few steps away from where I was standing. And that's where the furniture store was that had a morgue in the back. That morgue served as the place where, you know, Oh, uh, they kept the bodies and mm-hmm. did autopsies and that sort of thing. So this guy, without even having to leave this block, had influence to be able to do any of these things that you described. Wow. That just raises more questions as to how systematic things were. And I don't know if you, you know, if you ever want to drive to Fairfax and stand in front of that theater and look across the street and you can see this. And then you could see the building where the doctor's offices were. Mm-hmm. And then you see where the pool hall was. And you see that lot. And it was all right there. You could do whatever you needed to do. Wow. To get somebody addicted to drugs, to carry out a hit, bury the evidence in an inquest. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was all right there. And I'm sure he felt supremely confident that he could walk into a, a mortuary and oversee, you know, So I'm just going to wrap up telling the story. So Henry Roan is just one of the many Osage to be found murdered by poison or gunshot or other means. And this caused a stir in the Osage nation. There was great fear and paranoia and some were moving away. Some suspected friends, family, anybody really who knew who the killer was, or if they'd even be brought to justice, even when it came to white people coming after native money. Why would anyone care to advocate for the Osage? So this guy, Ramsey, was brought in for killing your great-grandpa. And they had to get to the bottom, of course, of who was really behind this. So Molly's husband, Ernest Burkhart, 
who had also been a part of Bill Hale's crew, confessed he knew what happened. So Henry and Molly are cousins and they get married, but then get divorced, but they still care about each other. Molly then marries Ernest Burkhart, who has been part of these goings on. And he eventually confesses that he knows this guy. Ramsey was the one who actually pulled the trigger. So Molly's own husband was part of these events. I can't even imagine what she must have thought when she found out. This nation had gone through so much. And during the trial, the press treated it like an exciting murder mystery solved. No respect for these poor people and everything that they had gone through whatsoever. From here, the story unraveled and Bill Hell was brought into the spotlight as the mastermind behind the killings. The decisions around where the trial would take place went back and forth between federal and state. The murders had taken place on Oklahoma land, but Henry's body was found on Osage land, which would mean federal jurisdiction after all. So July 29th, 1926, the trial of William Bill Hale begins. He's ultimately charged with aiding and abetting, and Ramsey was convicted of the actual killing. And something interesting came out of that trial. It was discovered that the plot was originally death by moonshine poisoning, which was similar to how many of the Osage had been killed over time. So Henry's death actually was helpful in confirming the overall conspiracy of the others who had been murdered. Interestingly enough, the newly formed FBI solidified partly because of these murders. After years of corrupt law enforcement, judges, coroners, and more, the FBI stood against the old Wild West form of justice that had been prevalent in certain parts of the country at that time. Congress in 1925 passed a law which then prohibited non-Osage from being given head rights from Osage who have more than half Osage blood. But unfortunately, it was too little too late and the damage had been done. The murders resulted in a scattering of the tribe. Although there have been some positive changes made, the long-lasting effects cannot be ignored. So the story has become commercialized somewhat due to the book and movie being such a big deal. We talked earlier about Jim's interview in This Is Life from CNN with Lisa Ling. I thought it was really well done. Um, Lisa Ling seemed very respectful and like she really wanted to understand the people and the story and the human side of things. And I believe I watched it on HBO Max, but looking it up, I believe you can also see This Is Life with Lisa Ling by renting or purchasing on Google Play, Vudu, Amazon Instant Video, and iTunes. And so the FBI was asked to investigate all the mysterious murders, one of them being the murder of my great-grandfather, who was taken out in the country outside of Fairfax and shot in the back of the head. And his body was found a few days later, and um, they were able to uh, uh, investigate his murder because it occurred on Indian allotment land. So for those of us who are reading the paper about the McGirt decision that federal crimes can only be investigated by uh, uh, crimes against Native Americans can only be investigated and prosecuted by the federal government because they had jurisdiction on traditional allotment land or restricted property, as they call it. That policy started with the murder of my great-grandfather. The people who were accused of committing this murder, and I'm sorry to, to spoil this, 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 this important story from the filmmakers uh, <laughs> making this movie, but it's part of the book. So if you read the book, you know how this plays out. Mm -hmm. So, But it took several cases to be able to even prosecute him because the lawyers for William Hale and others who were 
named in this um, criminal case of his murder said that you can't really, um, the federal government doesn't have jurisdiction to prosecute crimes against Native Americans. And yeah. that had to go all the way to the Supreme Court and they decided that no, they do have jurisdiction. The state doesn't have jurisdiction on allotment land that was identified in that case. And so once that decision came down, then they could prosecute. So it took several years for him to, to eventually be prosecuted. And so my, uh, my relationship with him, unfortunately, is defined in the files of the FBI, who only knew him as an Indian who had gotten caught up in a unhealthy relationship hmm. with William Hill. And um, the main, I guess, mainstream media, as they called it back then, or what they would refer to as mainstream media back then, mm -hmm. really defined Indian people as a vanishing race of people, people who really didn't belong in this century. If they got anything at all, it was only by accident. <laughs> and we should not take any crime against them seriously. And they treated us as if we were extinct and a vanishing race. They did it in popular culture with art. They did it with mascots in professional sports that were becoming a big deal at the time. They did it with the policies of assimilation and the boarding schools and breakup of tribal land holdings and robbing the tribes of the ability to govern themselves even during the worst times. And I could say, honestly, that it not only robbed us of all of that knowledge of what his life could have been or should have been, but it also robbed my mother of knowing her grandfather because he was murdered two years before she was born. Right. And my mom's mother, my grandmother, died in a car accident just a few years later. Hmm. Those kind of deaths were never investigated for any foul hmm. play. Wow. Jim, Indian, that's so sad. A Native American flow, you know, Osage fell down a flight of steps is not going to get investigated. Right, right. And they, you know, a, a Native American hanging themselves as a suicide is not going to get investigated. All these kind of things were very commonplace. And, and it's sad because that's a, uh, that I don't have any personal stories of my great grandfather other than what that investigation revealed about it. Now, mm -hmm. their job there was to find the criminal who committed this crime. And it wasn't really their job to tell his story, you know? Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so that, if I keep coming back to this theme of who gets to tell our stories, this, you can understand why, why I'm Absolutely. doing it. Because I wouldn't want to wish what happened on my family on anybody. Mm -hmm. And if nothing else that, that I, I'm given an opportunity to speak about it on programs like yours, what I hope that you do is that you take a look at your own family and your own tribe and your own story and find out where it fits into that narrative. And, 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 and in that process, you'll learn something about yourself that maybe you didn't know about the resiliency of your ancestors that went through some horrible, horrible times and mm -hmm. still held on to their culture, still held on to their language, still held on to their land, still held on to um, the principles that made people who they are in terms of what their ancestors are and was able to pass it down, even despite federal policies that were doing everything they could to break it up. That is so important that we understand that 
because we got to know the, the ugly parts of it to understand just how freaking lucky we are now that we've still been able to hang on to what we have. Well said. And that's why I think we do have the right to be a bit offended when people give us that call to say, hey, I know you're Choctaw or you're Osage, and I'd love to be able to figure out how to get my child into the tribe so that they can get, you know, free stuff. It's like, yeah, wow, do you have what any a- clue what my ancestors went through? And you just, <laughs> there's just free stuff flying all over the place. Yeah. Where is this free stuff you talk about? What a, what a oversimplification of something so complicated. Right. It just and, it breaks um, my heart. Yeah. It breaks my heart. Really is. It's wow. sad in a way because it just shows you how much work we still have yet to do. It really does. And, and I think that there's a way for us to communicate this to others who never grew up around the American Indian culture or people. Mm -hmm. And there is a way that we can communicate and be civil and help them understand while also letting them know you're, you're hurting my heart right now by seeing my ancestors as just something to give your kid money for college. You do have any idea what they went through. And usually they don't, they have no clue. And if they did, I think most people are well-meaning. I think they would really take a step back and, and want to treat that differently. I think it's important that we also recognize that in some cases we have allies outside of our own tribal community who are sympathetic. I know that since this book came out, many people have come forward and even David Grand, the author of Killers of the Fire Moon, would hold book signings. I know in one case, I was at one in Tulsa that he had, and it was ironic in a way because his granddaughter, the not David Grand's granddaughter, uh-huh. William, William Hale granddaughter was in the audience oh my goodness and and she got up to speak and i didn't know this but my son left where we were sitting in the auditorium and he got in line to speak so at that moment the granddaughter of the guy who killed my great-grandfather and his great-grandson was in line to speak to this author at the same time she was completely apologetic as much as she possibly could be for something that she had no control over. But, but the, just the knowledge that her grandfather had committed these horrible crimes against the Osage people. She wanted to unburden her conscience a bit, I think in front of this large audience. Mm -hmm. And um, so for her part, I thought it was interesting that she would show up at this event knowing what's in this book and then to take the mic and actually say to oh him, that's that's know. really gutsy very and, much and um, i appreciate that she did but wow yeah. and of course when my son got up there he was all but maybe 25 at the time i think and uh, he took the mic and he introduced himself and he <laughs> says i'm henry roan's great great grandson and you know the I'm, author's sitting there going oh and, and david grant is like <laughs> He said, are you Chief Gray's son? He said, yes, I am. Oh, my goodness. And you could hear a pin drop in that audience. And it was really <laughs> it was really neat in a way because yeah. I didn't put him up to it, okay? I, wow. I, he came to this question all on his own. And I thought it was really good. I'd like to repeat it to you. Uh, yes, please. He said, um, Mr. Grand, you're not the first person to write about this. And in the past, we've had several people who have come from outside of our community to write about this. And they have produced a book based on the same material that the FBI collected in their investigation. 
So the stories are, they kind of come out very similar, if you know what I mean, mm -hmm. because they're all driven, drawn from the same source of material. What I'm asking you is, is that because this is like the fifth book that's been written about that period of time that I know of, what, what we've seen happen is that these authors will come in and they'll hold events like this and they'll sell a lot of books and they'll make a fair amount of money doing it. And I'm not denying anybody the right to be paid. I'm just saying this is what happens. And then they leave and we never see them again. So my question is, how is what you're doing any different than what everyone else has done in the past? It took David Grant a good five minutes to get, yeah. get an answer. But yeah. it was an honest answer. He, he says, I can't, I have tried my best in the last chapter of the book to try to create a legacy of how those events in the 20s are still affecting the tribe today. And I feel like it's something that I, I owed it to the tribal members that live today, that they need to have that legacy issue part of the story because the story didn't end in the 1920s. It's right. still happening now. The other thing is, is that I don't know whether I've done enough to distinguish myself among the others who have written about this in the past. All I know is, is that I had tried. I've, I can honestly hmm. say I tried to make this something more than wow. that. And, uh, but it was, it was important. Every, my kid opinion, everyone did their job. You know? Right. I mean, right. Henry did his wow. job. David Grand did his job. And even the great granddaughter of William Hale did, did her job. You know? And I thought it was a very interesting moment in that and as the book was getting, you know, selling like hotcakes all over the United States. And it right. became the number one right. book of that year in 2017. And so I know there are people that are allies out there, Rachel. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and, but I want, I, but I, I beg them to stay in your lane, you know, mm -hmm. don't try to be us. And for God's sake, just because you read the book, don't, does not mean, you know, our story. Mm-hmm. You know, and, one family story as told from a white FBI investigator. Right. It wasn't written by, you know, right. Roan or something like that. Yeah. Right. And so we need allies. Indian country has always needed allies because there's real work to do out there to help correct some of the, the mistakes that have been, been done in the past. And we can't do it by ourselves. We need allies out there in the, in the non-Indigenous world to support us. You know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so I think that's where we're at right now. I think we're at that point now where we're we're trying to find our voice in the midst of this huge, huge Hollywood blockbuster movie project. Somewhere in the middle of all that, the filmmakers made room for us to make a, make a contribution on our own terms in our own way, and I I think it's a good sign, and I hope we see more of it because. If this movie is any way at all successful, and uh, I have no reason to think it won't be, but you know, I, I still have to say it that way. But it, mm -hmm. should it be as successful as everyone is predicting, and it wins Academy Awards and whatnot, you know, and it becomes a critic and commercial success, it's going to open up opportunities for other Native filmmakers and other tribes to tell their stories too. Yes, and so. I think that uh, this is an important moment for the Osages. It's an important moment for Hollywood, streaming services. And it's an important moment for tribes generally mm -hmm. to, if they have a, and I think there, unfortunately, every tribe has some reign of terror story in their past. 
you know, whether it's the, the Trail of Tears or it's uh, Pine Ridge and Wounded Knee. I mean, there's if every if you look into each tribe, they will tell you there was a horrific event that occurred in the past that unfortunately has, you know, hasn't been fully told. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, a, it's a dangerous step to go down that road because not all tribes are ready to confront that kind of thing. True. And I was just thinking about that. It's kind of like, sometimes they say, if you don't tell your own story, someone else will. However, yeah. not every tribe, not every person is ready to talk about all of those exactly. things. And some of them don't want to ever talk, like, let's just not go there ever again. Right. So yeah, there's that conundrum. But for those who are ready to tell their stories, and again, this is part of what this podcast is about, but on a grander scale for movies and, and TV shows and all that, for people who are comfortable for their tribal members, their family members, et cetera, if, if all of them come together and say, yes, we're ready to tell this, it can be a powerful moment. I sometimes blame Hollywood for just giving us everything from a non-natives perspective, but at the same time, they haven't been able to even get some natives to open up and speak. And I, it, it all makes sense. They've been told for years not to, and they've been afraid to, because once they do, they get taken advantage of. So I also think that I, you know, here and there I'll meet people from LA and, and in that world. And I don't think that they have made a safe place necessarily. And I'm not talking about the killers of the flower moon filming. Cause I think they really sounds like they've done a good job, but they also that, had to kind of redirect the way they were doing it. And I think that project is more of a New York deal than a uh, Hollywood deal. Okay. I mean, yeah. With Scorsese machinery, Hollywood machinery is largely based there. I, I think it changes the way he thinks about it. I uh-huh. think it changes the way he approaches films. That may not be part of the way they do it on the West Coast, but I, that's just me. Uh, I'm I'm pun I'm I've delved into the world of pontificating now. So just stop me right there. <laughs> no, 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 you're good. <laughs> no, you're good. But this could be a pivotal moment because of what yeah. he has done. Let's bring some New York to the West Coast, maybe. Who knows? Yeah. But but I well, really like. I've been approached here and there by different. Mm-hmm. people. And I'm like, I don't trust you. I don't like you. I have heard how you speak about women. You know, no, yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't feel like this is a safe place for me to be. I'm going to stay on my own and not make any money. And that's well, okay with me. You know, Rachel, I think people were right to be concerned because <clears throat> yeah, with very few exceptions, how many times can you, how many movies can you point to where they did get it right? Mm-hmm. And if the, the record is spotty at best, and none of the ones where they did get it right were commercial success or critical success by Hollywood standards, unquote, um, the, t- the temptation to follow the traditional model of just doing what's always been done, have a white right. savior come in and save the Indians from themselves, right. <laughs> is always the model that people follow. You know, you saw that with Little Big Man, you saw Dances with Wolves, Last Mohicans, I could go on and on and on. But the big blockbusters have that element to it. And so I'm I'm fairly confident that they're going to avoid that trap with Mm -hmm. this movie. I don't don't know for sure, but some of the changes I've seen made that have been talked about publicly in the trade publications does give me some confidence, especially last year when they were year and a half ago when they things were shut down they rewrote a big portion of the script and moved leonardo's character from the fbi agent who investigates the crimes 
to the husband of Molly Burkhardt, who is at the center of this, this series of murders that's in the movie. That's a huge change. They don't normally make those big a change. Uh, I mean, they literally rewrote the script and moved the main character to this other person. So that's now going to be the focus, this relationship between these two. And, Which I think is so humble of him in a way. You know, he could have easily yeah. said, no, I've been yeah. doing this my whole life. Stay out of it. And yet yeah. he really put his best foot forward. And even if this does not meet expectations, first off, that, that would be terrible because we've had some mad, we've had, some, we would have some mad people um, mm-hmm. against him. But even if it doesn't quite meet the expectations we all have, maybe we can go, hey, this is a step in the right direction. And I can't think for everybody, of course, I don't want to push that on anybody, but at least they tried, at least it's a step in the right direction. And this could be that pivotal moment where all movies after this that have to do with American Indians have a different perspective than what we've seen in the last how many years, right? Right. I mean, look at what Sterling Harjo did with Resdoc. I mean, mm-hmm. right. no professional screenwriter working in Hollywood that's disconnected from Indian country would have come up with that story. No, right? No, I mean, no way. Some and, people still don't even understand what some of it means. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but if you were born and raised in the Creek community, growing up with these stories, it would not seem foreign to you. Right. It would just seem, it's just wow, <laughs> I can't believe they they put that in there, you know? <laughs> I mean, right, I can't believe that. And by the uh, way, that is funny to us and not to non-natives, which is so bizarre. You know, sometimes they're like, that's really disrespectful. It's like, it's their own culture and they're making yeah. fun of parts of it themselves. Yeah. It's okay. Yeah. I mean, we have to I be mean, careful still, but. But what's really impressed me was that the, the Emmys, is that what it was, the Emmy or the Golden Globe? Uh, yeah, one or the other. That was such out of the blue original creative work that they had to acknowledge it as one of the most successful series that was under consideration for a golden globe that wow it made it was nominee it was a nominee mm-hmm. for the best series last year and wow. so that separates this this critically acclaimed work from all the others that were had bigger stars had bigger budgets had you know more people and and this little little project <laughs> over here in hulu ends up blowing them all out you know why right. because it was original and it was genuine and it was honest and it was told from an indigenous perspective now what does that mean for future projects it means a lot of future projects that are coming up that way organically may get more attention than they've ever gotten in the past right because now they've got them they've got somebody who broke that glass you Mm -hmm. know and now there's room for others to come through you know so you combine what happened Mm -hmm. with res dogs with what this movie could be oh absolutely we may be heading to some really exciting times of filmmaking because of these projects that were that we're watching right Agreed. Agreed. And and what I love about Reservation Dogs, for those who haven't watched it yet, you have to watch it. Please watch it. It's on um, Hulu by FX. And it's basically just, it's not a super high budget show. It's just basically the day in the life of these kids. There is a storyline and it's well done and it is very indigenous. It's, It's how 
indigenous people live every day. And there's such a, a variation between, you know, we've got the story of the Osage on one hand, this pivotal movie that I think is needs to be told. It's sad and horrible, but it's going to open people's eyes. And then on the other hand, you've got, you know, some really funny characters in this show, just showing about their daily lives. You look at that movie, that show like Res Dogs, and you see that struggle of living and understanding the past in sometimes a funny way and sometimes a serious way. And then you see it almost simultaneously with the cold realities of where we're living at in 2021, when this movie, these shows were broadcast. If you look at it from that standpoint, Res Dogs makes a lot of sense. Well, and I will say this, my only qualm with when that show came out, I was so excited about it coming out and I could not get people to watch it. I was shocked. And they obviously have had great ratings. They've had viewers, but for some reason, um, you know, I would ask people, have you seen it? And then I'd ask again, have you seen it yet? No, I still haven't had a chance. I'm like, it's been six weeks. Why have you not watched it yet? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you want to see something original and funny and, and good. And there's heartbreaking moments as well. Watch that show. It there's no one that can't, I mean, I probably wouldn't let like a seven-year-old watch it because there's there's some mature themes in there, but I'll I'll just say this though. I think that's the secret sauce to this show. I mean, Mm -hmm. uh, it captures the, what goes on the subconscious of young Indian men and women who love rap music, <laughs> love fry bread, right? You know, they and they made the fry a bread. and they made a song. <laughs> they made a song, and I love it. Uh, it's anyway. so great! It's yeah. so great, and that's why. Okay, I hope we have at least spurred some curiosity for people who haven't watched it. For the love of God, go watch it! Yeah. It's so good, but pay attention to it because there are going to be questions that you have, like, "Why are they saying that?" Mm-hmm. Go ask one of your friends, or go look it up. You'll probably be able to figure it out. Um, I have to admit, I had to talk to my daughters to find out years ago what Skodin meant, and once I realized, I was oh. Okay. You know, right. it all made sense. I just, I needed what they call a translator for me. <laughs> right, right. That generation, you know? No, I totally understand. Or people that have just never, you know, other outsiders wouldn't know either. We have a bunch of Skoden swag around here now. I just bought yes. my husband a, a <laughs> sweatshirt that says Skoden. But and then I gets, think it's yeah, going to travel. Go I think it's got a life on its own. That, mm-hmm. that, that language is going to carry us into the future totally totally and and listeners we're not even going to tell you what it means you have to go watch the show and then you have to go look it up so don't be calling jim and asking him not going to get it out of me that's right (laughs) (laughs) well switching gears a bit i want to give a shout out to your town here and share a little bit about the history here in skytook so what can you tell us about skytook (laughs) um it started out as a trading post uh turn of the century and uh I don't know that much about it, other than the fact that it's, uh, it, it has grown to be a very interesting border town between the Osage and the Cherokee Nation, where you have probably just as many Osages living here as you have Cherokee. Oh, really? And really? it's kind of a good mix, because half the town is in the Cherokee Nation, half the town is in Osage Nation. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, but all that does is just add its give it a little personality. There's a lot of uh, non-Indians that live here that work and commute to the city of Tulsa, which is the reason of, I moved here because I was I had a business in Tulsa at the time. Yeah. But I didn't like living in Tulsa. 
and Chattanooga's mm-hmm. only a 20 minute drive. So I I moved to this town and bought a home and established myself here in 1998. And okay. So I've been here ever since and the town's grown a lot. The tribe has a, a very strong presence here with casino and various programs and departments, daycare centers and all kinds of stuff. And we do a lot of good work in the communities, a lot of charities we support and uh, part of the business community. And we put a lot of people to work here. We're probably the largest employer in town. Um, and so I think a lot of people like the fact that the tribe has uh, Native American identity as well as a non-Indian identity. Uh-huh. Uh, they, they coexist a little bit. And sometimes there's some... Uh, clashes like I one time I got a phone call from the superintendent one time and he was really concerned that it was going to cause all kinds of problems because one of the students wanted to wear an eagle plume instead of a tassel at graduation and I said well why is that a problem I've seen people decorate their caps what's what's the problem he goes well we decided that we're not going to allow any decorations because of this Oh, really? And I said, why are you going to, how are you going to enforce that? I mean, I'm just curious. I, I mean, walk me through it. You're going to have people walking down the aisles, jerking kids out of there and telling them that they can't wear that or they can't put this on. <laughs> you know, it's like their parents, their loved ones are in the audience. I, I mean, is this the fight you want to have? <laughs> really? You know, and what if you get Indian activists come up and protest the school? You got six o'clock evening news covering he said you know sky tukes anti-indian you know it's like what's the upside please explain it you know good point yeah and because i ain't seeing it I, I, <laughs> if you just let that go no one's going to say a word no one's going to say a thing and everyone lives you know totally and, everyone lives and so, and so Eventually, I, I don't know if I was the one that persuaded him, but other people did, you know, that said the same thing. And right. eventually he let her go and it happened. So, oh, good. And guess what? The yeah. sky didn't fall in. Amazing. Sky didn't fall. Nope. The, the world as we know it <laughs> continued to move on. And um, so Sky Duke has a, um, a mix of old families that were here for decades, mm-hmm. you know. And then there's this new influx of people that came here when they built the Corps of Engineers, built the Skytook Lake. Uh-huh. And it became a destination of sorts for uh, fishermen and boaters and campers, and people like that. And, uh, and then they invested in it in the last 20 years to create uh, residential areas that beautiful vistas of the lake. Uh, it looks like Bel Air out there. I mean, there's a million dollar wow. home. Nice. scattering all around this place and uh, marinas and all this infrastructure investment has has really created a bit of a mecca for a lot of retirement communities to settle in there's a lot of wealth in this community and there's a lot of middle class in this community and there's a, a lot of struggling people in this community but i think the thing that is dominates its identity is uh, is its location to Tulsa as a bedroom community for people who 
like work at American Airlines. And you can mm-hmm. get there from Skytook in 15, 20 minutes. Sure, you know? sure. absolutely. And there's a lot of good paying jobs in Tulsa. And you don't have to put up with the Tulsa traffic like all the time, you know? Right. <laughs> you can True. come home and you've been here, you've seen it. It's a quiet little town, mm-hmm. you know? It's a beautiful and, community too. Mm-hmm. And some super nice folks um, that even opened up their office for us the other day. Yep, that was very um, nice of them. Such a great town, around 8,000 inhabitants from what I can tell. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to obviously figure out where the name came from. And all I could find was that the last hereditary chief of the Cherokees, William Rogers in 1872 was the one that founded it. Um, does that sound correct to you? I've read that, Okay, I, but I've heard other accounts too. So, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know when you're, <laughs> when you're, when you're founding your town, you don't know if it's going to make it or not, you know, True. I mean, there's a, <laughs> do you write it down? Probably yeah. Not. I mean, there's a ghost town up here, up Northern part of the Osage station. And it's nothing but a series of lots now that's been covered with grass because oh. it didn't make it. It was one of those boom towns. Didn't make it. Kind of grew out of the oil and gas boom, mm-hmm. you know, in the teens and twenties. But it had the best name ever, and uh, it, it was a town called Whizbang. Oh, Whizbang! I so yeah. want to go there. I mean, obviously, yeah. it sounds like there's nothing to see, but still. No, but I would love to go up there with, you know. A, what do you call them? Metal, metal detector? Yes. <laughs> we also need like a sonar cart where we can like yeah. pick up on uh-huh. other things too. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So maybe that's our next visit. We'll just go. I, I can yeah. steal one from my mom. <laughs> and- <laughs> She'll know if it's gone too. She'll be like, what happened to my precious? Which is. Yeah. Her- you may have to cut her in on something. Okay, fine. Find a coin. <laughs> <laughs> that would be so much fun though. I never thought about taking that to say a ghost town type of, of scenario. Well, you but, probably uh, wouldn't be the first. I, I, I'm sure the place has been picked over. over probably. That's <laughs> probably true. But I, I was reading that you guys have all kinds of festivals there at Skytook. Do you um, want to share about some of those? Well, the one that, that I'm most familiar with is the, um, uh, the Kahika State Powwow, which is uh-huh. held every year in July late July, I think it's the last weekend in July. And it's been, they've been having that powwow in Sky 2 for like the last, I don't know, going back to the 60s, probably. Oh, cool. And so it's very established on the powwow circuit. Um, We have uh, people come in from all over the, all over Indian country to compete, you know, the price money and all that. And, And it's a good powwow for all of us because it combines elements of the Creek and the Cherokee community with that of the Osage mm. and an intertribal powwow kind of setting. So right. not only will you have the powwow and the dance and the contest that everyone's familiar with, but you'll also have at the end of the evening, they'll build a fire and they'll do stomp dance. Oh, you that's know? awesome. I need to and come so, to that. Yeah, it, you, get, you get to do both at Kahika State. <laughs> yeah, like right. That. Wow, and, um, I love it. You know, the women will come in and they shake scales and the men will sing and, you know, the whole stomp dance thing is a, a completely different vibe. From a yeah, interesting. It's, it's more of a community celebration, even though it's not, it's more demonstration and than it is mm-hmm. anything else. I mean, because I know there's a spiritual component to it that I don't think they do it for that purpose. 
but they do it for just fellowship and getting together. It's kind of a social thing, but I know that other stomp dances are taken way more deliberately serious than that. But, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. but you get both, you know? And um, the other thing that uh, Skytook is known for is the, the Pioneer Days, which is the big celebration of the founding of the town and the pioneer spirit. And yeah. Yada, okay. yada, yada. And, yada, uh, yada. <laughs> and then one thing that's grown in recent years is uh, a rodeo, yes. a Mexican rodeo. Okay, now and that I would definitely come to as well. That is something that's pretty cool, but I don't always know when they do it. The okay. only time I know it's happening is when I drive by and I see the lights on at night. You know, <laughs> I mean, that's they're how they're there. like, it's yeah. only for us Hispanic. We only Y'all don't need to. Yeah. <laughs> Secret time. <laughs> But uh, that's great. I love it. Yeah. So that's uh, that was a big, you know, and, uh, and there may be some other things that it's just not coming to me right now. But yeah, no, the that's... main ones that I, I'm familiar with. Well, I may have taken a peek because I was like, I've got to learn everything I can about Skytook. Because that's one thing I love about I've been to a lot of places in Oklahoma since I grew uh -huh. up there, but that's a town I had never really spent time in. And so I was home thinking, of the last tasty freeze in Oklahoma what no yep. way it's still there it's and the you didn't take one. me to it the other day it was cold that's true <laughs> <laughs> nobody's going to the tasty freeze no. <laughs> okay next time i'm in sky yeah. i'm well yeah. it'll probably be summer so I'll, yeah. well, that, we'll get one of those on our way to whiz bang there you go okay you go. um it's a date <laughs> it's it's a deal um yeah, so I was I was looking around fine art and quilt show fishing tournaments. Um, I hadn't heard oh, about yeah. the Mexican rodeo. I love that. Um, and then that that um, Pioneer Day Festival. It looks like there's uh, chili cook-off, art show, fly-in, uh, a yeah. fly-in tractor show, all that. Um, but then the lake, Skytook Lake, looks beautiful. And then you have that museum here too that I really wanted to go to, but I ran out of time the other day. But um, the Skytook Museum and. Yeah. So I, I just feel like listeners, if you're looking for a new place to visit, you know, check some things out here, look at the, maybe the city calendar and see what's going on. See if you can hit a festival, the museum, um, you know, and, and we've just spent all this time learning about the events that happened in the 1920s, of course, but we haven't talked about the Osage nation itself. Do you have even five more minutes to talk about your traditions and culture or anything that you want to share on that? Sure. At the time we arrived in Indian Territory on our reservation, 1872. Um, it took us a while to kind of get settled. And by the time the 1880s rolled around, we had established ourselves in the three districts. And, and then we started to um, talk to our tribal cousins, which centuries earlier, we were all one tribe. Mm -hmm. That would be the Ponca tribe and the Kaas specifically. Mm -hmm. And they brought down a ceremonial dance that um, they gave to us. Oh, love it. And uh, this dance helped heal the wounds of our removal in mm. many ways. And it restored our sense of community. It gave us a sense of purpose again. And it helped us rebuild after so much had been lost. Hmm. Um, I'm not talking about the loss of just all the land per se, which was vast. 
we're talking about the state of Missouri and half of Arkansas mm. before wow. we ended up in a little strip of land in Kansas and eventually settled to where we were. When you lost that much of your territory, you didn't just lose your land, you lost your access to the medicine that that land yielded. Mm. That served as the healing for your, oh, your people because right. the things that grew in, let's say, uh, the Ozarks of Missouri does not grow in Skytooth, Oklahoma. I mean, mm -hmm. it's just the different herbs, medicines, and things that, that had served our people for a thousand years didn't grow here. Mm. And unfortunately, our folks were in no position to be able to help our people from all the malnutrition caused by the removals, the susceptible diseases that they could not cure. Hmm. We lost so many people that our population at the sign of our first treaty in 1804, 1808, and the arrival after the 1872 of those 68 years, we lost literally 90% of our tribal population. Hmm. Wow. So we had to start over in many ways. So it's a big deal when the Poncas and the cause brought those, those drums and those songs to the Osages because it helped us heal. Hmm. It helped us come together again and it gave us strength to continue on being Osage. That really and, is beautiful. And, and that those three districts conduct those ceremonial songs every year in Pahaska during the months of June. And, um, one weekend it's in Gray Horse, one weekend it's in Hominy, next week, you know, and one weekend it's in Pahaska. So hmm. um, they're probably more well attended now than they have been, simply because Osages are rediscovering that, that part that's been missing in them because it was never part of who we were, you know. Hmm. And, right, uh, right. And, and a lot of this stuff was done outside the tribe, it was carried on by families year in and year out they would observe and maintain a responsibility years later the tribe would put would give them money to help them put the dance on they would provide security they would have help people work there in case somebody got sick in the hot summer and um, you know so slowly but surely it became more of a hybrid event the uh -huh. tribe never wanted to run it or own it they just wanted it protected and developed and so in time we built arbors to mm -hmm. house all the dancers and bleachers for the visitors that would come, places for the families to set up camp. We built the grounds up so that it could absorb the thousand dancers that would show up on a Saturday night and their mm -hmm. families. So it's a big deal. It is a big, big deal. And it, it still defines us in a way that makes Osages who go there every year, it, it recharges their batteries. It gives them that sense of feeling and community again, even though so many of us don't live in the three districts anymore. We live everywhere, you know, mm -hmm. and, um, and it does something to you. Uh, see, hearing those songs, the singers dancing and the, the fellowship, it just, for just a little while, you just forget about 2022 and you think mm -hmm. about 1872. Right, you know? right. So I have one last thing before we head into our closing. The painter George Catlin noted uh, the Osage as the tallest race of men in North America as they stood six and a half to seven feet tall. I wonder if that's an exaggeration. Maybe George was really short or maybe that really is true. But but I, from the, 
we were. The Osage, <laughs> okay, good. To, the Osages I know are very tall people. So this is something that I just learned about recently. The Osage and the Choctaw used to go to war against each other. And I never yeah. stopped to think until now, oh, that's, you know, our famous chief Pushmataha was known for his <laughs> raids on the Osage. Now yeah. he was 5'10", but mm-hmm. That was tall for a Choctaw, but most Choctaw were much smaller than that. I think the average height that I read was something like five. Oh my gosh. I can't remember now five, two or something. So can you picture like even a five foot five Choctaw going against your seven foot giant Osage? <laughs> what were they well, I Here's the thing that I'm, this is my theory. Okay. okay. <laughs> Osage just lived in, and if you've ever been to the Ozark, and I'm sure you have. Yes. It is some of the most beautiful country mm, mm-hmm. in all of the Americas. And it's got a, a diversity of life, of different foods you can grow. It's rich mm-hmm. agricultural land. Rivers and streams and creeks provide a diversity of a diet that is uh, much needed to uh, grow, right? Right, and, uh, right lots of meat there's lots of different things i mean so when i think about that area it doesn't surprise me that osages grew to be so tall simply because Mm. the nutritional opportunities that were there in that area was so rich that you couldn't help but grow healthy right growing them tall yeah so that's my theory on it we had to defend ourselves in in protecting our territory, our hunting areas, and things of that nature, right? Uh, by being brutal, you know. Yeah. And yeah. when we were occupying our territory in Missouri and Arkansas and parts of Kansas and Northeast Oklahoma, which is where we were at the time of the United States forming, mm-hmm. um, they made a treaty with the Cherokees years later to give up some of our land in Arkansas and Indian territory. To the Cherokee. And mm-hmm. then the other five tribes slowly started migrating over here as well years afterwards. And so by the time the 1850s rolled around in 1860s, we're all looking at these guys going, uh, nobody told us that they're occupying land that's on our borders, you know? Right, right. So the battle ensued for wow. space, you know? Really? And, Interesting. Um, yeah. So Pushpataha led a group of Cherokees and Creeks and Chickasaw Good point. and raided the Osage camp and uh, they uh, they did that. Well, I promise you that I, as the five foot six, five foot seven on a good day, Choctaw, and I'm never going to, I'm never going to try to take on a fight with an Osage. I'm just going to say <laughs> that right now, but um, <laughs> not that I would anyway, but. <laughs> you guys outnumber us. You got that. Right. <laughs> That's true. There are 200,000 strong of us, but I, I still don't know. I've, I've seen how tall y'all get. So, so before we close up, I just have two, two last questions. Um, one is, are there any native causes or businesses that you'd like to promote? I'm working with a company called Corbett out of okay. Dallas, and uh, they, have, they are introducing a communications app to Indian country, and I'm hired on as a consultant. And oh. we seem to be making some very strong headway in parts of Indian country and you're going to see a lot more of us going forward we're only into our second year of doing this and uh, but it's a corporate communications app for corporations to use 
for their employees. Mm -hmm. And their lawyer that works as the lead counsel for legal counsel for them happens to be Creek. And uh, and he was he thinks that this might have an interesting application in any kind. Oh yeah, and totally. So I knew him from work that I did on the Council of Energy Resource Tribes years ago. And he called me and asked me if I'd take a meeting and we talked about it. And I, you know, because I come from a newspaper background and the tribal leadership background, I could see the value in what they were doing. And uh, it requires a certain amount of time to explain it all, how it works, how it has the look and feel of something like Facebook, but it's mm -hmm. nothing like Facebook because you own the analytics, you own the data, you, uh, yes. it's your, your information that, that only you have mm -hmm. that is your effort to communicate to your own tribal members, no matter where you live. And um, all you got to do is download the app on your phone and the tribe provides you the content and it hits your phone just like it would um, a notification would hit you on Facebook. But the oh, only difference great. is nobody's selling your data to third parties. And no one's pushing crazy stories on your timeline. The only thing that's right. on that only content is what the tribe wants you to know. And that's everything from programs and services to news mm -hmm. to, uh, oh gosh, whatever you would probably find in their tribal newspaper, you know, that's would be the kind of stuff flowing in instead of waiting for the newspaper to hit your mailbox, it would hit your phone. Yeah. And I mean, obviously something even right now, um, you know, COVID messaging, you know, here's where exactly. you can get um, your vaccine or right now it's, um, we're having some ice storms. So <laughs> everyone stay warm and let us you know. You can certainly you... see the value in it. And oh, you start yeah. thinking of the ways in which a tribe would utilize that technology because the, the, uh, the responsibility of communicating your tribal members is something that comes easy to us tribal leaders. It's just that, you know, as technology evolves, you start realizing, well, there's some good in Facebook that we all jumped on board 10 years ago, 12 years ago. And mm -hmm. <laughs> we also saw the dark side. Yes, we did. And <laughs> we don't want that, you know? So what, what's the third option? Well, I think we've got one here. I really yeah. like that. And again, it can just mm -hmm. be for certain tribes, certain communities, that kind of thing. So is it right. live right now? And we've got it live in uh, two tribes. The Pawnees and the Delawares are currently deploying it. And Wonderful. we've got several tribes in various stages of evaluation on the technology. So we, we're very confident that this thing's gonna start rolling as more tribes start to deploy it. Fantastic, so for let's say the Pawnee tribe, if someone heard this podcast and were interested in signing up and making sure that they're getting these really important notifications or just events that are going on for the tribe and such, mm -hmm. um, what would you suggest they do to get on board? Well, contact our tribal communications department. They're, they're going to be the ones who will be the source of the information that gets on the app. And, and they'll be doing a lot of demonstrations. I, I know we've been in, uh, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but we have some really cool ways in which we're going to introduce the app. Uh, they're going to have a contest to name it. Yeah, we're very excited about where we're at. For sure. And this is definitely one of those positive, cool things that's going on amongst mm -hmm. our tribes. And um, I'm, I'm always excited that it's someone like you out there making this happen. Um, you know, you're part of the Osage tribe and former chief doing really cool things. So I, I, it's like, is there anything you don't do at this point? <laughs> somebody called me and I had to look it up because I didn't know what the words were. They said, well, you're, the, uh, you're probably the most original polymorph in Indian country. 
<laughs> I was like, I didn't Love know whether to take that as an insult or a compliment. I had to go look it up. That was, oh, oh that's where you're I like, thought. okay, that's okay. Okay, okay I can be right, happy about this. Yeah. Well, I'm going to go make a t shirt. <laughs> that's uh-huh. funny. Me too. I kind of had to take a second and think about that. Yeah. Oh, well, thanks for all you're doing with that. Um, and finally, uh, are there any words of wisdom that you would like to share with myself and with our listeners? If I said it once, I said it in the middle of the interview, I'm going to say it again, just to drive the point home. People get in control of your story. Not everyone's going to get a Martin Scorsese come and tell your story. Oftentimes you're going to get somebody who's going to be, who won't have the kind of name recognition, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I think if this story, this movie turns into something big, it's going to cause a lot of people to pay attention and look around any country and see, well, there's hundreds of tribes in this country. And we can tell their story. Right. You know? Right. But, but they're not doing it for the purposes of what the tribe may want. Mm-hmm. It may be done strictly for commercial purposes. Of right. Making a buck. And, mm-hmm. and if the article I wrote years ago has any merit now, it's like, you know, the 1920s was a time of sheer exploitation and murder and greed for profit off the lives of Osages. Mm-hmm. And 100 years later, there's another windfall of economic opportunity on Osage, only this time it's telling the story of the greed and the, the taking of Osage lives. You know, mm-hmm. that's what's happening now. Right. So we're getting exploited all over again, you know, in a way. Mm-hmm. What I'm hoping is that we'll get to a point where we start taking those stories back, not for any commercial purposes, but for our own sake. Absolutely. Yeah. For no other purpose, but our own people needs to control their own narrative, their own story, their yes. own history and hang on to it for future generations. So that we'll learn the lessons of the past so that they don't get repeated you know, or, or to repeat them, especially in times of great strife. You know, what was it that got us through the Civil War or the Trail of Tears or the statehood or assimilation? What was it that kept the Choctaw people together during the good times and the bad times? Mm-hmm. You know, very good. No newspaper man in LA is going to tell that story as good as you guys know it in your own heart. You know, right. so you, you can't let someone else tell your story. You got to control. That's all I got to say. Lots of good wisdom there. Thank you for sharing that with us. And also, you know, taking time to share about your family. This is a hard story to talk about. And, but I do think that if they are watching you, they'd be very immensely proud of you and, and what you're doing and trying to hold their stories sacred while also glean some wisdom from it to share with others. So I'd like to wish many blessings on the Osage and your family and all of those descendants of Henry Roan. Yeah. Cookie. Okay. Well, thank you very much. The Choctaw Nation has always provided a foundation upon which a future can be built. From our home in Southeast Oklahoma to a bingo hall that grew to be one of the largest casinos in the world. Today's summer school programs lay the groundwork for a love of learning. Small business programs support local economies. And with over 10,000 jobs created, Choctaw offers financial stability to tribal members and our neighbors. Together we build success because together we're more. Thanks for listening to Native Chalk Talk. 
Be sure to join our community on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Simply search for Native Chalk Talk. That's Native, C-H-O-C-T-A-L-K. And check us out at nativechalktalk.com. Stay tuned for the next episode. You're going to love it. Yakoki. Thank you, my friends.